Before we go to Isaiah this morning, I want to just take you to Psalm 122 for a moment. Because Psalm 122 talks about the very reason that we're meeting here this morning. And I think something that we need to be reminded of from time to time, lest we fall into the trap of just doing something out of habit. And, and let me say this. It's given the choice between coming to church out of habit and not coming, I would choose to come to church out of habit, okay? And, and let's face it, sometimes we do things out of habit, and uh, we do the right thing out of habit, and uh, I'd rather be doing that than doing the wrong thing out of habit. But I'd like to do a little more than just come to church because it's what I do, okay? I think in the end we would all agree we want to we meet with God. And Psalm 122 talks about that. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I just want to talk about the first verse because I think it highlights what I'm trying to emphasize here. He said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. All right, now stop and think about it. Uh, the psalmist here has a sense of anticipation, David in this case. And he said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Um, he had a sense of anticipation. I think when we come to church, we should have a sense of anticipation. And we should pray ahead of time, Lord, help me to be a blessing to somebody today. And by the way, if you're not on this platform, you can still be a blessing to somebody. Don't think that only the people on the platform are the ones that can spread the blessings, if you want to look at it that way. No, just uh, a, a handshake and a friendly, good to see you, uh, believe it or not, could make a big difference in somebody's life on a given day, depending on what they're going through. Uh, being prayed up, singing with enthusiasm. Wasn't that good singing this morning? And we're learning new songs. I think that's a great thing. Um, just the spirit we bring, and, and that gets a little nebulous, so I'm not going to try to uh, uh, articulate that too much. But uh, there's so much that we can all uh, bring to try to be a blessing and then anticipate a blessing. So David here was glad. He said, I was glad when they said unto me. Now watch this last part. Let us go into the house of who? The Lord. So let's say you're invited to somebody's house Friday, this next Friday evening for dinner. Um, there's a sense of anticipation because of where you're going and who you're going to be with, and it's their residence. You know what you're excited about? You're excited about spending time with those people. You know what? When we come to church, when we come to the house of the Lord, we should anticipate meeting with the Lord. And I believe this, uh, and uh, God is my witness, that that's the thing I pray about the most when we meet, is, Lord, may we meet with you when it's all said and done. And uh, whether it's because of the preaching or the, or the singing or the fellowship or just whatever or everything in the aggregate, uh, that's what I always pray. Because in the end, yes, we're social beings. We, let's admit it. We do, come, uh, we do come anticipating fellowship and being with each other, and, and that's just got how God put us together. But more than anything else, we come to meet with the Lord. So just a little reminder. Let's take our Bibles and go to Isaiah chapter 53. I want to continue with the thought that Christ was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53. 
the great chapter in all of the Old Testament prophetically concerning the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 is another, but this is this chapter, all 12 verses, is entirely uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, in fact, it's often been called the bad conscience of the synagogue. Uh, Judaism, even to today, rejects that Jesus was their Messiah, that he was the Savior. And by all theory, they're still waiting for a Messiah. And um, when you look at this chapter, it just, it just screams the Lord Jesus Christ so much that they actually had to invent an explanation for it. And uh, the explanation that uh, Orthodox Judaism uh, invented for this is that this servant that the chapter's talking about is Israel. And, you know, when you read all 12 verses and, and, and you, uh, you, you, you put that to the test, it just doesn't work. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you have uh, the first three verses, you got the suffering of his rejection. And it really, it has to do with the suffering Savior. In verses four through six, you got his suffering of burden bearing. And then in verses seven through nine, you have the suffering of innocence. He suffered innocently, which that could never be said of Israel. When you read the history of Israel, there, there's, there's a lot of points in their history where you wouldn't say they were innocent. And then the suffering and reward of obedience from verses 10 through 12. So this is the great chapter in all of the Old Testament prophetically concerning Christ and his crucifixion for us. And we pick it up in verse 12. Uh, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, in the moments we have together, open our eyes to the word of God, speak to our hearts, and Father, do what no man could possibly ever do. No company of men could possibly ever do. And that has ministered all the needs that are represented here. Father, we pray especially for that one without Christ, that this would be the day of days for them. And then beyond that, Lord, for your people, that we might be encouraged to draw closer to you, Lord, and understand better what you've done for us. And Lord, that that love between us and you might grow, grow greater uh, particularly in our hearts. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with your love toward us, but we struggle with things sometimes. So help us, each and every one. Each need might it be met through your word somehow. We don't know how except that only you can do it. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We often talk about our identification with Christ. I think that was alluded to already this morning. But you know what? We can't identify, we couldn't identify with Christ unless Christ had identified with us. And he initiated this whole process. I think of what Paul said. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And so, as we identify with Christ, we do so because Christ identified with us. We looked a couple weeks ago at the fact that Christ identified with the poor. Over and over again, he would say, and the gospel is preached to the poor. In fact, sometimes he would make this remark as 
a badge of his authenticity in his ministry. He identified with the poor. Uh, Christ identified with the physically infirmed. And with his stripes, we are healed, it says in Isaiah chapter 53. And so this morning, if, if you have illness, or you know a, a loved one that struggles with illness, and, and they know Christ, the good news is someday they're going to get a new body. Yes, healing is in the atonement, but we don't get it all now. That's pretty obvious. That's pretty obvious. But one of these days, we'll experience the fullness of that truth. Where I want to take you next is found in Mark chapter 10. And I want to talk about a third group, and that is, believe it or not, the rich. The rich. Go to Mark chapter 10, and Christ identified with the rich. It says that straight up. Straight up in our text in Isaiah 53, but I want to take you to Mark chapter 10 and just show you an example of an encounter that Christ had with someone who was wealthy. I think if you read your Bible with your eyes open, you find out that Jesus is not this commie revolutionist Jesus that some liberals try to make him out to be who hates the rich and whose whole goal is class struggle. Um, Jesus identified with the rich. In fact, someone said, it's not a crime to be rich. It's a miracle. (laughs) And uh, I want you to see this. Um, Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And when... He was gone forth into the way. And by the way, just, just in, in, stroke, hitting this thing with a broad stroke of the brush, uh, God doesn't condemn having things, but he warns us about getting attached to things or coveting them. You know, I've met some rich people that weren't nearly as covetous as some poor people I knew. I mean, I've met some wealthy people that understood what it was. It's just, it's stuff. It's a, it's a means to an end. It's not an end itself. And, and I've met folks that didn't have much that, that just really thought that that would be their ticket to happiness, and they were covetous. So it's really not about what you do or don't have. And by the way, what it really comes down to is contentment. It really comes down to contentment. That, that's what brings joy. We've talked about that over and over again. But uh, the Bible says in verse 17, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Uh, this, this man had a concern for spiritual matters, even though he was wealthy. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that, but one, that is God. And, and what he was doing there is he was, he was kind of bringing him along like, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm God, not just, not just a teacher here. Uh, verse 19, thou knowest the commandments. Uh, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he asked and answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now I want, I want you to see this next phrase in verse 21. Then Jesus beholding him, what's the next two words? loved him. 
and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and take up thy cross, and follow me. And verse 22, and he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it? Now watch what he says, For them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, I've heard a lot of different stories I heard the story of a man that was dying of an incurable illness, and he said to his doctor about a week before he died, he said, I, would, I will give you half of what I am worth if you can find a way to cure me of this. And of course, it couldn't be done. He died a week later. But uh, when, when, I, when I see what Jesus said here... Um, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, money is a defense. I wouldn't want to be poor. Is there anybody here that wants to be poor? I think of Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where the, the writer said, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with food convenient for me. You know what he was talking about? He's talking about being middle class. Well, I'm glad I live in a country where I got a, a, a really good fighting chance, if I'm willing to work, to be middle class. That, that's really, to me, that's the best situation. But, but here's the problem. A lot of times when people have riches, or as I already suggested, they don't. They think that riches are the answer, and that's the problem. Children, verse 24, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul talking to a young pastor and and, and he tells him that one of his jobs is to, to exhort the wealthy, to exhort them that are rich, not to trust in uncertain riches, and then to be generous. So nowhere does it say it's a sin to be wealthy, but it can be a hindrance if we're not careful. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible. By the way, that's true of all of us. It's impossible for us to be saved, but for this last phrase. But not for God, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. The fact that any of us today can be saved and sealed with the Holy Spirit and on our way to heaven is a miracle. But Christ is emphasizing the fact that this, riches can be a distraction. Now, now think about this. There were, there were many in the Bible that were wealthy, that were great men and women. Um, it seemed that Moses was wealthy. Abraham certainly was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea who lent Jesus the tomb to be buried in, was a wealthy man. I think of some men in history. Uh, C.T. Studd, the great missionary, who went to three different continents as a missionary. He went to Africa. He went to uh, Asia. 
and I'm mental blocking the third continent, but he went to three different continents. Uh, he was the toast of England in sports before he gave up playing cricket. Now, cricket doesn't mean much to most of us here uh, this morning, but cricket in England at that time was like baseball to America, and he was the Babe Ruth of cricket. He gave that up. He, he, he came from a wealthy family. He had a lot, a lot of, uh, the family had a lot of what they would call in those days old money, generations worth of wealth. And uh, when God called him to be a missionary, he literally gave away his entire inheritance. The Bible says, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. An English noblewoman was asked one time how she got saved. She, get, she, said she, she said, I got saved by an M. She said the verse doesn't say not any. It says not many. She said, I was saved by an M. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that a lot of us fall in this category. Now, if you're comparing yourself to America, and, uh, and I remember when being a millionaire was the hallmark of being rich. It's not anymore. It's being a billionaire. And there are a few in this world that are creeping up on trillionaire. But you want to know something? When you go to a lot of other countries, uh, they think if you have two cars, you are rich. How many here today have two vehicles? Two vehicles. Just about every hand went up. We live in the country of plenty. I think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. And Zacchaeus came to see Jesus, and he repented. And when you, when you think of tax collectors like Zacchaeus was, uh, they were hated, they were loathed among the Jews. They were considered traitors, and all they had to do is bring back in their stewardship to the Roman government that which the Roman government exacted, and then by extortion and blackmail, they can get whatever else they wanted, and the Roman government turned and looked the other way. And in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus comes to Jesus, and he repents of all that, and he gets saved. You see, God doesn't hate rich people. He loves them just like he loves the poor. They just have a bigger hurdle to get over in order to get saved. Paul talked about preaching to the small and the great. In Luke chapter 14, many had been bidden to a feast. And one guy begged out because he had bought land. And he wanted to go see it. I think he should have seen it before he bought it. Another begged out because he had bought an ox. And he needed to prove it. I think he probably needed to prove that ox before he bought it. Another guy begged out because he had married a wife. I don't know whether he was just a newlywed, madly in love, or he was henpecked already. But what was the problem here? They wouldn't come to the feast because they were preoccupied and in many cases with things. 
I think of what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He said, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I've often said to you that I think prosperity may be a greater test of character than adversity. And the church at Laodicea felt because they had wealth that they were okay. They didn't even consider that they really didn't have any fellowship with the Lord. So therein lies the danger of things, of wealth, of riches. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ identified with the rich. He loves the rich as well. Maybe you're here this morning without Christ, and you have found out the truth that riches don't satisfy the soul. They don't satisfy the soul. God loves you, and he wants to save you. He wants to give you eternal life. There are many in Scripture that came to Christ who were wealthy. I think of what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think this bears spending a little bit more time on than I, than I planned on. Uh, you know, I, I've said to you before, uh, that's one of the things, among many others, that I think is, is, is great about a missions emphasis. A missions emphasis. We live in a country where people talk about disposable income. You say, what's disposable income? Uh, you, you, have, you have more money than you need. So you could make a, a pile with it and burn it, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't really necessarily miss it. And, 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 and Jesus counseled the church at Laodicea to buy of him gold tried in the fire. I, I think when I, when I have the opportunity to give to missions, it's an investment opportunity. You know, sometimes we might not drive the uh, newest vehicle because we give to missions. Uh, maybe our kids won't be wearing those clothes with the name brand tag on it. That might do them some good not to. Maybe they won't become snobs. You know what I always think is kind of funny? These companies splatter their name across the clothing that you buy and charge you more to advertise their name. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. First Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 17. He says, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. I think for us that are middle class or upper middle class or wherever we fall on that or even lower middle class, because like I said, compared to the rest of the world, most, most of those people think we're wealthy. But I think the biggest thing there is this, the high-mindedness can come in the form of a sense of entitlement, that I should be able to get everything I want. 
And is that really what God promises us? Doesn't the Bible say that we're to be content with food and what? Raiment. Boy, God sure has been good to us, hasn't he? Most of us have so much more than that. He says that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. I think for those that are just wealthy, 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 filthy rich, kind of people that if we had their money, we'd throw ours away. Here's the warning. Here's the warning. Don't get arrogant about it. The Bible says in Proverbs, the rich answereth roughly. Why is that? Sometimes they have the attitude, hey, I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I got more money than I can spend. I can do whatever I want. And so a little arrogance creeps in there, and that's why the Bible says in Proverbs that sometimes the rich answer roughly just because they have the attitude, hey, if you don't like me, tough. I can buy a friend just like you. By the way, would you want friends that you bought? <laughs> so what does Paul say? He says, he says to, to, to all of us that we're not to be high-minded, and, and for those of us that may not consider us ourselves filthy rich, let's just not have a, a spirit of entitlement or get mad at God when we don't get everything we think we deserve. By the way, what do we deserve? Besides a one-way ticket to hell. And not to trust in those uncertain riches. And if we have a lot and we're enjoying that, well, then don't be arrogant. Be thankful. Lord, what did I do to deserve all this? But to trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Um, God is not a masochist. God is not a sadist. God did not invent monasteries, okay? He's given us richly all things to enjoy, and he wants us to enjoy certain things. Good food, amen? I'm amongst a bunch of Baptists. I should be able to get some amens out of that one. Uh, creature comforts. I got a car now that practically drives itself. I hit this one button, and it'll stay between the lines. It's got some sensors, and it just kind of bumps off the lines and corrects back and forth. And then after about a minute or two of this, a big thing flashes on the screen that says, take the steering wheel, idiot. <laughs> doesn't use the word idiot, but it uses the word real close. I mean... I don't deserve all that. Yeah, it's been hot out, but I haven't noticed it in my house. I got air conditioning. God doesn't begrudge you that. Who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. He just wants us to have the right attitude about it. Look at verse 18. That they do good and that they be rich in good works. So be a good Christian. You know the world with this Marxist attempt to create class struggle in our country to divide and conquer, by the way, and ruin it? Now, they're using a lot with race, but back in the day, uh, Marx, 
and, and, and whether it was in Russia or even in China under Mao, it was all of this, the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. And they created as much class struggle as they could. And, and God knows nothing of this. He, he doesn't begrudge us having things. He just wants us he just wants us to have a good attitude about it. And notice that the rich can do good and do good works and, and distribute and communicate. And yet in our culture, especially, especially coming from the left, well, you know, if, if, if you have things, you're, you're a bad person. You know what's funny? Most of them are rich. I... I have they ever done the math? They're actually condemning themselves. And so, verse 18, be full of good works. Be a good Christian. Don't let your wealth, and like I said, folks, I think I'm talking to everybody because just being middle class, most of us have more than we need. And we can be distracted with what we have. We can be distracted by the opportunities we have. That's why I say I, I, I'm not one of these guys that believes, you know, well, well all the Christians in the third world countries that have nothing, uh, they're the good Christians and, you know, we're wealthy so we're the bad. No, I'm going to tell you something. It might be easier to serve the Lord when you don't have anything else to do than it is when there's a million things you could be doing. And you still decide to serve the Lord and go to church and do good, verse 18, and be rich in good works, ready to distribute. So if God's given you a lot, give a lot of it away. You can't take it with you anyways. And when you die, your kids are just going to fight over it. Willing to communicate, verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Christ identified with the rich. And think of this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, see, Christ was rich, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made what? Rich. And when you think of the inheritance that we have just in our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, oh my, my, my. Joint heirs with Christ. Do you realize Christ is the heir of the universe? Never mind the richest man in the world. So what? We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He identified with the rich. I want you to look at another one this morning. It's found in Mark chapter 5, just a few pages back. The next group is the sin-wrecked. The sin-wrecked. And we see an example of this in Mark chapter 5. And they came over to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. This man was sin-wrecked to the point where he, he had become 
possessed by demonic spirits. Um, folks, there are, there are some sins that if we participate in them, if we indulge in them, if we continue in them, we run the danger of opening doors for demon spirits. Now, there, among Christians, there's always the argument, well, can a Christian really become possessed? I don't know about that in the sense of this man. But boy, if you're not careful, you can give the devil control of a lot of your life. And you call it possessed, obsessed, whatever you want to call it. But you don't want it. Drugs, alcohol, rock music which is with its hypnotic beat. That's not a whole lot different than what the witch doctors use in the jungle to get themselves into a trance where they can meet with those spirits intentionally. There are so many other examples I could give, but this man had gotten to the place where demon spirits had taken full control of him. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met with him a, a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, uh, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. By the way, he hung out in the tombs. Parents, don't let your kids watch horror movies. Parents, don't watch horror movies. What is the infatuation with death? Pray tell, how, how can you reconcile that with being a Christian? Oh, I just like to see people get their heads cut off and, and roll down the stairs. Spitting blood all over the place. It's just so neat. You keep watching that kind of stuff, you're going to open up doors. You're going to fall in love with the perverse. You got to be careful. This man had gotten to that point. How, we don't know. But notice in verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. He had a supernatural power because of those demonic spirits. And he obviously was a tormented man. And the Bible says because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when, Jesus, when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I, do to, have, I, have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. On another occasion, the demon spirit said, Art, 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 thou, come, art, art, art thou come to torment us before the time? I don't have time to get into that this morning about what he said and why he worshiped Jesus, but keep something in mind. The devil is religious. I don't have any time to go into that. I want to keep, keep moving on this point. Um, verse 8, For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. This man was in a bad state. 
And he besought him that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was uh, nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000. And we're choked in the sea. And I heard a preacher say one time, a southern preacher, he said they committed hogicide. <laughs> so there were at least 2,000 of them in this man. And they that fed the swine fled. I can imagine. And told it in the city and in the country. They went out to see what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. Wouldn't you think they'd be rejoicing? I mean, here, here was the, 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 the sort of uh, wish-he-would-go-away landmark of the community, you know. If you visit our town, you'll hear this guy crying out at night and and stay away from him. He has supernatural strength and all this other stuff. And, and you would think they'd be rejoicing. And the Bible says uh, they were afraid. And then notice. And they that saw it told him how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil. And also concerning the swine. Now here's their big concern. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Now we can't afford this economically. We just lost 2,000 pigs. Now, never mind that we got this guy back. We just can't afford this economically. Jesus, you need to leave. Isn't that interesting? He identified with the sin-wrecked. John Wesley talked about those that the devil was tired of, that God would take them. They said of Jesus in the form of an accusation, he eateth with publicans and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. I think of Mary Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. She followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And you know what? She was the first to see Jesus after the resurrection. You see, when you get saved... God doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't really care where you've been. I got this little pamphlet, David Berkowitz. Remember son of Sam? Mid-70s, killed six. They finally caught him, and, and he was definitely possessed. He, he admits that in his testimony. And he said that the neighbor's dog, which was named Sam, was telling him to kill people. And I mean, it's just crazy. But he calls himself the son of hope now. And he's, he's got a testimony. And, and you know what I always look for in this? I look for repentance. And here's what he said. He said, eventually I crossed that invisible line of no return. After years of mental torment, behavior problems, deep inner struggles, and my own rebellious ways, I began to committing horrible crimes. Looking back, it was all an awful nightmare. And I would do anything I could to undo everything that happened. Six people lost their lives. Many others suffered at my hand and will continue to suffer for a lifetime. I am sorry for this. 
You say, well, I just don't think a man like that could get saved. Well, how about the Apostle Paul? You read his writings, don't you? The, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, he was rounding up Christians to torture them out of their faith in Christ. He says, I compelled them to blaspheme. He was, there, he was standing there consenting to the death of Stephen as Stephen was stoned to death. But you know what? Christ identifies with the sin-wrecked. The woman taken in adultery. You saw how Jesus handled her. And maybe you're here this morning. Sin-wrecked perhaps from vice. Or maybe you're like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You know, we all have a tendency to, to, to look at our sin as, as lesser and what the other guy is doing is, you know, really, really bad. I think of some sin-wrecked from vice. We had a guy in our church back in Pennsylvania. This was 1980-81. I was a kid preacher just taking this little country church in southwest Pennsylvania, and it was the uh, granddaughter of an older couple. And she started coming to church, and then her and her husband come to church. And they were a couple of characters. His, his name, his nickname was Red. I won't tell you his last name. His nickname was Red. And Red and his wife started coming to church now and again. And uh, I got a call one night about 2 in the morning, and I, I had to go there and uh, break up a knife fight between the two of them. That, that was fun early in my ministry. I just knocked on the door. They said, come on in. The door's open. I opened the door, and they're both standing there <laughs> holding each other at bay with a knife. They didn't cover that in Bible school. <laughs> They, she was in and out of jail so many times. She, she was having a, a, a hearing in court one time, and I don't know, back in those days, they must not have had her uh, handcuffed or anything like that, but she got out into the back, one of the back rooms, went through the ceiling, and got out through a ductwork, and she escaped while they were having her hearing. I visited him in the hospital one time. She blew off part of his kneecap with a shotgun. <laughs> And I remember they come to church one time, and I was preaching, and, and I don't know why the Lord led me. Well, now I, I do. But I kept saying during the message, I said, if I could find a sinner, I said, if I could find a sinner somewhere, I said, I got a message for you. And every, every time I would say that, he'd raise his hand and go, here. <laughs> Long story short, old Red and his wife, they got saved. They got saved. And you know what? When you get saved, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. That old past is wiped away. And sometimes those kind of people make the best of Christians. You know, those kind of people don't sit around wondering, what am I missing by not being in the world? <laughs> they know what they're missing. And they're glad they're out of it. You know, I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. I, I, I think if you're a second-generation Christian and you can come through clean, 
Why don't you just learn by someone else's mistakes? Why spend your whole life wondering what it smells like in the dumpster? Just take the word of the guy that used to live in the dumpster and crawled out that it stinks. <laughs> and the advantage you have is you don't have all those scars that some of us have. Folks, I, I, can, I can walk by a restaurant or be in the mall or something and they'll play a certain song. And I mean, the battle's on. And the memories and, and all the bad stuff and... And, and, and you live with that for the rest of your life, and you have to fight it. You have an advantage if God saved you from all of that. Now, for those of us that get saved out of it, like I said, we're not going to sit around wondering what we're missing out on. But the problem is, a lot of times, those kind of Christians can lapse back into those things. And so Jesus loved and identified with the sin-wrecked. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked. He was numbered with the transgressors. And even on his cross, even on the cross, he pardoned the thief that was dying for a capital offense. What a great Savior, folks. What a great Savior. He was numbered with the transgressors. You know what that means this morning? He was numbered with every one of us. He identified with every one of us. And the book of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call them brethren. You say, who am I talking about this morning? I'm talking about you. You. Well, you don't know what I've done. He does. And he's not ashamed to call you brethren or sisterin. It's not a word. I just invented it. That's for the female brethren. He's not ashamed of you. You know what we ought to do this morning? We ought to walk out of here and determine not to be ashamed of him. There's a world out there that's just slanted against him. And, and for a very simple reason. The God of this world is Satan. And he has just slanted just about everything against him. He's not ashamed of me and you. Knowing just not only what everybody else knows about us, but what no one else knows about us but us. And he's still not ashamed to call us brethren. How about if we walk out of here this morning unashamed of him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that Christ identified with the rich. And truth be known, most of us, by the world's standards, would fall into that category. And for the sin-wrecked. How many wonderful testimonies there are of those that you reached down into the slime pit of sin and pulled them out and cleaned them up and set their feet on a solid rock. We thank you for that great truth. Help us this morning, Lord, to determine to walk out of here. And just as you were numbered with us, may we walk out of here numbered with you, unashamed, identifying with you, and telling the world and rejoicing 
over such a great Savior. We love you, Lord, this morning. We love you because you first loved us. And help us to keep our eyes on you that our love for you might grow and that we might grow in thee. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What number, brother? Number 381. Let's stand and sing. Blessed Assurance, number 381. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission. Perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, ring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. And this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above. I'm filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior.